coming up on today's show, what's the deal with that balloon that was detected over Canada in the United States and ultimately shot down over the weekend? We'll get some insight from Charles Burton. A big shift when it comes to public perception on privately offered, publicly funded healthcare and even some pay for healthcare services in our country. And we'll get an update on the situation in Turkey and Syria. Let's get the latest on this situation regarding the Chinese balloon. We know it's a Chinese balloon. Uh, Beyond that, uh, it depends on who you listen to. Um, Government of China says it was a weather balloon that got blown off course. No big deal. Nothing to worry about. The U.S. says, no, 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 that was a surveillance balloon and they shot it down. Um, China has now filed an official complaint at at the embassy in the United States saying that this was a provocation and going way too far and an overreaction. Um, Okay. It's interesting because a lot of people say, you know what, even if it was a surveillance balloon, and it was, let's be honest here, um, it's not going to tell them anything that the satellites they've had up there for a long time haven't told them already. So it's a really confusing situation. So let's see if we can't get the details on it and find out what it was, why it's there, and what the developments around it might mean. We're going to speak with Charles Burton, who's a senior fellow at the McDonald-Lurie Institute and a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. We've had him on the uh, air several times. It's always a pleasure. Charles, thanks so much for joining us today. appreciate your time. Great to speak with you, Shay. So, okay, so first of all, I mean, it's a surveillance balloon, right? I mean, can we pretty much uh, all understand that that's what it is? Or is it possible that it is what the Chinese say? It wasn't just a weather balloon that blew off course. Nah, I mean, it's much, much too big, and there's like, there's like uh, sensors on it that, that amount to the size of two city buses. So this is no normal weather balloon, you know, which would be much, much smaller. Anyway, the thing has been, you know, it's been uh, blown up over the sea uh, just off the coast of the Carolinas. And the Navy is, um, U.S. Navy is currently salvaging it. And they'll be making a report to senior members of Congress and the U.S. administration on Wednesday and then they will do a classified report to the entire Congress on February 15th, and they'll tell us exactly why China felt it was necessary to send this balloon. It seems that it may be that these balloon sensors are able to pick up on signals that satellites cannot, so that might be a justification. But I think there's a lot more politics involved in sending something right across from the west coast to the east coast of the United States, um, sort of sticking it to the Americans that we're doing this and look, you're not going to do anything about it because, you know, you you don't want to break down relations with China any further or something like that. I think the Chinese have very much misread this whole situation. And that and that's the interesting aspect to this, as always, uh, is in terms of, you know, it, because is it because they get away with these kinds of provocations? I mean, we'll deal with Canada in a minute, but we should point out it did go over Canadian airspace. It was detected by Canadian officials. They didn't even tell anybody about it was the United States who let, I mean, we know that Canada rarely, if ever, does much, but the United States, I mean, is this a provocation that's unusual for them? We know they've sent these balloons there before. Yeah, I mean, they sent balloons before, but they haven't sent them right across the United States, making stops at critical nuclear and military facilities along the way. I mean, it's a dirigible, right? So it's being guided. And you can see that it's not just randomly drifting across. It's it's going to places and stopping and gathering data and moving on. So, you know, there's no question that, that this is something that's being done to send a message. And I think the Chinese did not expect it to be made public. I don't think they expect it to result in Secretary of State Blinken um, canceling his trip to China to discuss how to, you know, ease tensions or come up with some communications devices that would allow um, that this 
the situation with China not to turn into war. Maybe they thought that they could get U.S. concessions on U.S. monitoring of the Chinese uh, military facilities that they've that they've uh, created by land reclamation in the South China Sea. I don't know, but I think it's going to come out. But regardless, you know, the the thing has backfired because mm. it looks like tensions are so high that we are, in fact, gradually moving closer to the prospect of a military confrontation between the U.S. and China. And that's not something that anybody wants to see. Yeah. How serious is that? We know the uh, Chinese government filing official complaints and uh, they're, they're very upset and say this was a dramatic overreaction and it further inflames the tensions that are already in that region. How big of an event is this, do you think, going forward? Does it change the path we were on in any measurable way? Well, I think it's changed the path in the sense that it's become a huge, huge issue in Washington. And it's really competition between the Democrats and the Republicans Mm. as to who can more effectively stand up to China. So I think that that is certainly a factor. You know, the U.S. has just recently announced that they'll be putting some large military bases on the territory of the Philippines facing Taiwan. So you sort of you look at it and it's sort of one thing after another that that just seems to be leading to a situation that could careen out of control and result in in some sort of uh, military action, you know, maybe short of war or indeed a war over China's expansion of the international waters of the South China Sea or China's attempt to, to annex uh, democratic Taiwan. So, you know, it is bad. And I think where Canada fits into this is is something that's important for Canadians yeah. to consider. And and that's the question, and I guess it, it looks like, once again, we're really not even uh, invited to the table. It, it was the United States that uh, ultimately took the step. To, uh, I mean, Canada didn't even make it public when it, it came through Canadian airspace, and apparently NORAD detected I mean, what do we, what should we think about the way Canada has, uh, I guess, not been involved in this more so than anything else? Yeah, I mean, you know, if... If we'd received an information from the Chinese foreign ministry that a mistake had been made and uh, unfortunately a Chinese weather balloon is you know, heading over into Canada's sovereign territory and feel free to blow it up if you, you, know, mm-hmm. if you want to, um, that didn't happen. And so, you know, a, an unmanned Chinese surveillance aircraft comes onto Canadian territory, um, you know, surely any country would say, okay, well, um, you know, we're going to we're going to explode this thing and send it to the ground and see what what the surveillance um, uh, apparatus is, you know, because I presume as it was over the Arctic and over Alberta and over Saskatchewan, that right. it must have been over areas that are not inhabited, and it, there would be no reason why we shouldn't take it down, except you know if we feel so cowed by China that we're going to say, oh. You know, feel free to 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 do your spying. Uh, we we uh, we we respect that and and let it go. I mean, that what kind of a what kind of a sovereign nation are we if that's our attitude? But that seems to be our posture so many times when it comes to China. That's that's the issue, right? It's just yet another example of us being pushed around on the schoolyard, if you will. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, are we going to stand up to a bully, or are we going to you know? let them feel that they can do more and more outrageous things and sending the balloon slowly across the entire um, width of of north america really suggests that china feels that they've they've got us and you know maybe they like the idea of 
people being able to look up into the sky and see a, a Chinese surveillance device looking back down at them. But, you know, that's not the that's certainly a violation of the global order yeah. that 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 preserves our sovereignty and security and prosperity. Yeah, it most definitely is. Charles, as always, uh, I really appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good to speak with you. Take care. That is Charles Burton, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. And, you know, I, I think there's no other way to look at it in terms of the Canadian reaction and response to this other than once again, um, just sort of doing nothing in the face of Chinese provocation. The U.S. did. They responded. Back here in our country, we've talked a lot here on the air about healthcare in Canada, and we all seem to be in full agreement that we got a problem, a big, big problem, a crisis, if you will. We hear the horror stories one after the other, and all levels of government talking about what they're going to do, what they can do, what they need to do to make things better. For the longest time, even as we've gone through this, I mean, this is not a new situation. Our healthcare system for years, I think, has lagged behind our expectations. And certainly, um, you know, the investment that we make in it, we don't get the results uh, that should match the amount of money that we spend. So one thing that always comes up and gets immediately smacked down by a large segment of the population is we need more private involvement within our healthcare system. Now, that's not to say necessarily, although in some cases it is, uh, you show up with the MasterCard and you need a knee replacement and you get it. You skip the lines, you just pay for it and you get it. More so we're talking about private facilities, right? privately offered health care, but it's still publicly funded. It still fits within the public health care system. But even that, even though it exists in so many ways in our country already, even the mere mention of that, it's, it's the slippery slope argument. You know, we're opening the door to American-style health care, and no Canadian wants that. That's been the take for a long, long time. But a new poll out today uh, done by Ipsos, uh, exclusively for global news shows, there has been a shift and a big shift, unlike we've seen in some time when it comes to that resistance to the offering of privately offered, publicly funded healthcare in this country. And to walk us through the results, we're going to chat with Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, thanks for joining us. Always appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me on, Shay. Yeah, the big headline here is, uh, you know, the, the story I was reading say you've been, you know, you've been at this for decades. Now, you've never seen uh, this kind of response when it comes to that mere mention of, of privately offered health care, right? A massive shift? Yeah, well, normally this question just gets smacked down. I yeah. mean, Canadians are not enamored with the idea of having what you just described, which is uh, American-style health care in which you, uh, you know, get, you have your care evaluated based on your financial resources. Canadians aren't uh, really uh, keen on that idea. But what we're starting to see are cracks. And the reason that we're starting to see cracks is that uh, Canadians are really concerned about what is available to them now through their publicly funded healthcare system. Now, previously, when we'd ask people questions about healthcare, uh, and they'd mention that on a survey, it was always, well, I'm worried about what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's usually how it was oriented. Today, the answers that we're getting back are really much more about what's happening now. And as a result of that, we've seen the urgency around healthcare rise. And people are now searching for options and alternatives. 
um, and open-minded about what possible solutions to, uh, you know, the pressure that we're seeing in terms of uh, the services we're, that we're getting, ways of relieving that pressure. So that's why I think we're seeing the numbers that we are. And, and you know, some of the headline numbers, 85% of the Canadians you surveyed said, you know what, we got to do something dramatic here. We need to make some big, big changes because we're just yeah. being let down, right? Like they're opening the door to some big changes. Yeah, and, and I, I think that where they're really thinking is how services are provided um, through the public system. So the first port of call will be, um, you know, the delivery, the private sector getting somehow involved in the delivery of private services, but still through the single payer type of an environment. And that's where you see the numbers, you know, in in the range of the 60s. Um, The other thing that you would see is people saying, well, you know, maybe if you have more resources and you're able to pay for something yourself, particularly if you're affluent, maybe you should be able to do a little bit more of that. So there's there's these cracks starting to form, whereas, you know, when I've been doing this research back as far away as, you know, as long ago as in the 80s, people would never touch those things. Right, yeah. They and would not, not even be considered. But now we're starting to see this because people are saying, you know, it's not so much a problem that's on the horizon, it's in my life now. Yeah. And, and, and we need to do something better, and that's where 85% comes from. And and the sixty percent this this one really surprised me because like we've said you know this was a non-starter this was don't even bring this up it's political suicide sixty percent of the people you surveyed said yeah you know what if you can afford it pay for it go ahead we, we're okay with that I mean that really surprised me yeah it surprised me too um, and you know you would we really have to sort of plumb down in that to find out exactly what they're what they're talking about but even you know just raising the possibility normally would get a really yeah. no number for that that type of thing but we're even seeing in the survey results i don't know if you went this deep but you know a third of people saying that you know they'd be prepared to go to the u.s to get services a third wow i mean so you, you can see where the, the cracks are here and uh, the public is i think uh, prepared to look at some more creative solutions. I'm talking to you today, unfortunately, from Toronto. Oh. Well, that usually goes over really well in, yeah, in Alberta. But, would you lose a bet? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in Ontario, which is you know the most one of the most stalwart places when it comes to single payer health, uh, we've just had the provincial government announce that it's going to consider expanding the amount of private sector uh, uh, supply um, uh, in, in its new proposal. And you'd thought there'd be an explosion in this province, and there just hasn't been. Um, in terms of, and this was also interesting, we, we know that um, the provinces are meeting with Ottawa starting tomorrow, talking about health care, and there's this big push to have Ottawa provide more money for health care. And, and we've said many times on the air as we've talked about it, that's not the answer. We can't keep doing that. It hasn't worked. It's not going to work this time. And I think a lot of Canadians, according to your survey, are saying, you know what, the provinces can't just keep asking for more money as the solution. They need a plan. There has to be a plan. They're, they're, they're not just pointing the finger at the feds in terms of funding. They're saying the provinces need to step up here too, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and the reason they're saying that is that they're, they're asking for practical things. They're saying, okay, how is this actually going to improve what I'm getting? Right. How is this going to, you know, make sure that I can get an MRI in a timely period of time, that I can, you know, I'm not going to sit for 12 hours in the emergency room. How, how, is, how is this money that we get from the federal government, because we're talking billions and billions, and after a couple of million, it's, it just sounds like a lottery when to most people, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, but, okay, so how is that actually going to make a difference on the ground for the services that I can expect to receive? And that's where the province is being held to account. 
what are what are you guys going to do to make sure if you get more money from the federal government that it's actually going to lead to better services for me? I, in terms of demographic, you mentioned some of the regional breakdown here that's uh, kind of surprising. But it, it, interestingly, um, younger Canadians, which I think most of us are, you know, would view as the more progressives, which are typically more opposed to private health care, according to your findings, they're actually more willing to explore it. Yeah, and I think for a couple of reasons. Probably one reason is uh, that they've been hearing about this for so long that they're they're kind of getting used to it. Just like pe- for pension systems, when you go ask young people, you know, is uh, is CPP going to be available for you by the time they retire? Most young people say no. Right. <laughs> they, yeah. they just kind of see Don't the count on, on it, the yeah. wall. Yeah. So that's that's part of it. But the other part is they're not the big users. So they're not people who are coming in, you know, really dealing with the healthcare system right now. So for them, some of this may be more future-oriented than, than something that's happening to them immediately. And that's why I see older people who are more used to the system and more maybe nostalgic about the system saying, you know, I, I, I have more trouble with this. But also they're the people who are more likely to be using it more frequently. Yeah, makes good sense. Uh, great insight. Uh, good stuff. Thanks very much, Gerald. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Shay. That's Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs uh, Canada, walking us through some of those poll results. And I got to say, I'm, I, I'm pleasantly surprised. Which is the situation in Turkey and Syria. An earthquake which was centered in southeastern Turkey has now killed officially more than 2,500 people. But as I've been saying all morning, that number... Um, will be much, much, much higher before all is said and done. Sadly, thousands more injured in Turkey and in Syria. It was a 7.8 magnitude quake. What does that mean? We'll find out in a minute. Uh, It struck before dawn. Okay, so people were in their homes. And if you've seen video, um, hundreds of buildings came down. uh, Just high rises, residential apartment buildings collapsed in a second. Uh, Residents are trapped under the rubble, obviously. Um, Syria just coming through the civil war and the crisis that's gone on there. I mean, it's just a humanitarian disaster that's unfolding. Countries around the world offering help, uh, the European Union and NATO also stepping up. Um, it's, uh, It's awful. It really, really is. So let's get some insight as to what happened, what the expectation is with an earthquake like this, and, and what we might see in the days to come. We're going to chat with Dr. Katsu Goda, who's an associate professor of earth sciences at Western and the Canada Research Chair in Multi-Hazard Risk Assessment. Dr. Goda, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's just start with this magnitude scale that we use. It used to be called the Richter scale. It's not anymore. Um, it's, it, it works in orders of magnitude, right? Like when you see an increase, it's, it's, it's an exponential increase. Explain how the scale works and what 7.8 on that scale means. Okay. So in general, like it, as you say, it's a logarithmic scale. So like if we have a difference, say magnitude of 7 and 6, say then like the released energy is, uh, is different by uh, 32, factor of 32. So if you see uh, two magnitude difference, then the released energy is a difference of magnitude of 1,000 factor. Wow. Okay. Uh, in terms of how severe of an earthquake this is, at 7.8, uh, where does that put it in order of um, power? Well, I mean, I cannot for sure say like how much kind of energy it relates to, but like it's it's 
pretty destructive. Um, like uh, uh, San Francisco earthquake was close to like in magnitude. So like uh, and then that created a fires and a lot of collapses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the largest history like uh, in Canada like uh, occurred uh, was the, the 2012 um, 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 the uh, um, uh, Queen Charlotte earthquake um, that was magnitude 7.8 but because there was not many people live there but here uh, in turkey there's a lot of people live there so that's a huge difference so it's it's almost impossible then to say what kind of destruction a 7.8 magnitude quake would cause because it's specific to where it strikes correct Correct, and then like as you as we saw in many uh, video footage, like uh, you know the high-rise building and like collapsed, yeah. and then uh, partly because of the the how the buildings are constructed in Turkey, and then like we saw that the instantaneous kind of um, the collapse, like a, like a pancake uh, cra- uh, collapse of the building, and then that indicates that the, some of the the engineering was not uh, adequate, and then that killed so many people, and then people would not have any time uh, to to to. Ev- to evacuate from the building. So I would suspect that the, the huge amount of uh, additional fatality uh, would happen. When we talk about Syria, we, we know what's gone on in that part of the world for the past 10, 12 years. Uh, infrastructure has been completely devastated to begin with. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, Turkey, obviously not in that same position. But do you, what do you know about that part of the world and its ability to withstand a 7.8 magnitude quake? Because the pictures of the destruction, Doctor, are it's pure devastation in some places. I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think the uh, the rescue operation is, is critical. So, like we are looking at the, the 72 hours uh, windows for the the survival uh, from those okay. disaster, and then like snow and rain happening. So this time window of survival is shortened for sure. And then like uh, the infrastructure, like uh, water, sanitation, everything is necessary. So I afraid, I'm afraid that the, the Syrian side, like there's not much kind of humanitarian kind of support in there. Probably in uh, Turkey side, like there's a lot of uh, organized yeah. kind of act uh, would be there. So, yeah. In terms of aftershocks, I know there was the initial quake, and then I think it was about 10 hours later, another quake of the same magnitude struck, causing even further damage. What's your what's a reasonable expectation in terms of the length of this event? Do you think it's over? Will there be more aftershocks? I would think that this is going to be more, uh, there going to be more uh, aftershock. Uh, so, like, in general, like, um, the, if the, the magnitude of 7.8 happened, then the, the largest uh, magnitude expected is about 6.8. But the, given that the already 7.5 happened, mm-hmm. then, like, a significant kind of increase uh, hazard and risk exists, and then this persists for uh, weeks, even months. That part of the world, how prone is it to earthquakes? Have we seen massive quakes like this before? I mean, I I saw a tweet earlier from somebody just last week, uh, somebody from Muirfield saying uh, a quake there is imminent. So this was not completely unexpected? Well, I mean, it, it is expected. Uh, so this is a kind of uh, the southern boundary of the, the Anatolian uh, fault uh, kind of block. So uh, the northern part, which goes directly into the close to uh, Istanbul, uh, raptured about uh, 20 years ago, 1999, and it killed about 17,000 people. Then, like this one is the, the southern part of the, the the tectonic kind of movement, and then I think that this was this has been relatively quiet. Mm-hmm. But that is, that means simply they were I mean the faults were accumulating the the strength, and then this happened just just today. Um, yeah, and, and, and in terms of I, I guess 
like you say, there's that 72-hour window um, where lives can be expected to be saved. We're already approaching, uh, coming up on, I think, about 16 hours. So the clock mm-hmm. starts ticking immediately. Um, when we have aftershocks, does that change it? Does it shorten that window? I imagine it would, right? Well, I mean, like the the activity, like what we can do depends on the aftershock. So if there are aftershock, then like we should not go, of course, like we have to save more lives, but like we should not create another fatality. So we have to think about those balances that those who are alive, who are doing the rescue activity, but if there are a significant aftershock uh, hazard, then we we should uh, proceed uh, very cautiously. How how do you do that though? How do you make that assessment, Doctor? I mean, I mean, we see people flocking um, to the collapsed buildings and places like that, desperate to try and find any survivors. Are are you saying it might be prudent to have them stand? I mean, how do you make that calculation? Well, it is a very difficult uh, things to, to to evaluate. So, like uh, whatever the uh, the authority, if red tape, then that means that there's additional kind of a collapse risk uh, from the the in, I mean seemingly intact uh, building. But like there might be internal cracks and etc. So the people should not go into those red tag or the yellow tag building. Um, yeah, well, it, it is very difficult to to predict yeah. what would would happen. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's just, an, and I guess that's the last question. I mean, even we, even knowing that this is an area that's prone to this kind of activity, you cannot completely protect from it, right? I mean, I imagine there are parts of the world where some of the infrastructure is better able to withstand something like this, but this is an earthquake that's going to be destructive no matter where it happens, correct? I would think so. Like Magnitude 7.8 is one of the largest, and then like it's a, it's a extreme to have like a two shocks of the similar yeah, uh, yeah. size. So we might be designing the buildings for one shock, but like, not necessarily for two shocks or multiple shock. So again, I would expect that some additional damage would happen to the buildings, and they might kill more people. Yeah, it's just an awful, awful situation, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. That is Dr. Katsugoda, who is an associate professor in earth sciences at Western University and the Canada Research Chair in Multi-Hazard Risk Assessments. And as I said, this this is a situation that continues to unfold, and unfortunately, it's only going to get worse from here. Uh, Here is the latest information. More than 2,500 people have been confirmed to have died. Thousands more have been injured. But uh, as you heard from the doctor, and as I was saying, that, that... those numbers, unfortunately, are just the start, and uh, they are likely to go up in a big, big way uh, in the coming days. Uh, if you're not on social media, I'm sure it's now starting to show up on different broadcast outlets. It'll be on the new newscasts uh, in Edmonton and Calgary, I'm sure, for Global. Um, because everybody has the cell phone and everybody has a camera now, I, I, I can't tell you how many different videos I've seen of buildings, apartment buildings, you know, big, tall, high-rise apartment buildings just collapsing in a second uh, in the night. So you know people were in those buildings. So that death toll of 2,500, um, likely just the start. Uh, this quake is one of the strongest to hit that region in more than 100 years now. The exact location is 23 kilometers east of Nerd- Nerdagi, if that's how it's pronounced, in Turkey. Uh, it was 24.1 kilometers below the Earth's surface. And as the doctor said, the aftershock started up shortly after. There's been a number of aftershocks, including one that measured 7.5. The initial earthquake was 7.8. One of the aftershocks, 
7.5. As I said, a number of countries have jumped in to offer assistance and to do what they can, but uh, sadly, the damage already done. Also, some stories about, you know, the the historic, um, globally significant archaeological sites in Syria that have been damaged as a result of this. And you know what the situation is in Syria. There's been civil war in that country for a very, very long time. Infrastructure non-existent in several parts of that country. A number of people forced from their homes, living in encampments and things like that. So um, it's just adding more and more misery to uh, life in some parts of Syria. And on top of all of that, it is the winter. And um, as the doctor said, there's rain and snow in some places where they're trying to carry out these rescue operations. It's just, it's, uh, it's a It's just horrific. It really and truly is. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.